Okay, so we are now, Conversations with Yogananda, we are in number 243. And we are still monks and sexuality, so we just get to do this for another day or two. And then I think we get to move on. All right, but we're not finished yet. All right. A Hollywood actress who, so I learned afterwards, had starred in several well-known movies. Swami was so completely out of the picture by that point. So I learned afterwards. She was probably one of the most famous stars in Hollywood. So I learned afterward, had starred in several well-known movies, came to visit the master. I was present during the interview, which was private otherwise. This visitor, as things developed, was someone who might be described, Swami's so delicate, as a devotee of D.H. Lawrence or Sigmund Freud, both of whom considered sexual repression to be the chief source of all present-day unhappiness. I can see him sitting in front of his computer trying to think about how to phrase this. and being really quite delighted when he figures out exactly how to say it. Because <laughs> those are not master's words, that Swami's. I love sex, she proclaimed enthusiastically. Isn't it wonderful, she says this to master. <laughs> Certain things, the master replied calmly, are infinitely more so. <laughs> you just love the picture, don't you? She continued her theme with exuberance, however, not really picking up on his clues. After a few minutes, the master pleaded with her. You shouldn't dwell on such things in the presence of a young monk. Oh, she exclaimed in surprise, did they know about sex? Well, they're not dumb, the master replied. Later, happening to find me alone, she smiled at me in what I supposed was meant to be a dazzling way. I had a good chuckle over it. This is Swami speaking. The master, however, when we spoke about her afterward, called her a demon. Wow. Wowie sowie. You know, I remember we were, I was with Swamiji and a group of people. We were in uh, Goa. And there was a, a shop there that we walked by every time when we, Swami used to take several weeks in Goa in January because the air was so bad in Delhi. The fog, the ground fog would come in and the pollution, so he would go down to the sea because otherwise his lungs. And he would invite various of us from around the world. So I had these wonderful three or four times with him. But there was a shop and there was a painting in the window and it was some kind of a sort of, it wasn't actually mogul, it was more modern. And there was some woman and then there was a man. And Swami sort of looked, sat, stood in front of the picture and looked at it for a moment and he said, see, see how lustful he looks? And see how pleased she is that he does. <laughs> and it was really like that was really what the picture was. And that was presented, and that is presented in our culture. Now, Master's response to this movie star, who probably has a lot of her success and her allure is all of her feminine energy, which she uses in that way. Master calls her a demon. That's really at odds with the way we think these days, isn't it? I think Master was also trying to make a strong point. But Master talked a lot. You have to get this all in balance because it has to be all understood in balance. But he talked about women who prey upon men's vulnerability in that way really have have no... um, Well, that's what he called... That's what's demonic because you're just you're just preying upon that you don't un- you're not you're not understanding you know what what the power and the benefit of that energy is and what can be built 
in a positive way with that energy, you're just using the fact that men are vulnerable. And that's, that's, the, that's where the demonic part comes in it, most of all. And in other contexts I've heard him talk about that. And in our society, partly because we are in this strange period of balancing, you know, everything in, in especially as we trans, translate into a new age, you know, the, the way, the oppression that was commonplace against women in the last 100 150 years, I'm not just talking um, yesterday, but the way a woman was really owned by her husband and no matter how abusive, couldn't divorce and if divorced would lose her children and had no rights and no property and no vote and... I mean, all of those things are not good. And when you start reading, uh, I've just studied a little about the suffragettes and how how violently they were opposed when they just wanted normal rights for women. See, we, we all are just born into this. We just live in this reality. And then we've, we've been going through this cycle where women are, are getting appropriate respect and equality and all of that is good, but some of that has had to be done aggressively. And sometimes when people start on a path of aggression aggression becomes the attitude rather than actual justice or dharma or or balance. And so because we're uh, in a swing position where women are really having to push and are still needing to push, um, everything is a little tilted. I I didn't by any means follow the whole story. I think I was out of touch when it really started. Whatever happened at Google when some poor man wrote something about how women are different than men and then there was this huge hoo-ha about it and I, I didn't take the trouble to find out but I saw one line that I just loved. He actually wrote that women really are more interested in having a balanced life and, and I thought that's a criticism? You know, I think that's a compliment but that was one of the reasons why they aren't good employees. It's, I mean, I think women should stand up and say, you're darn right we want a balanced life. What's wrong with you people? I mean, there was a certain amount of the little bit that I read that women took such offense over that I actually thought was really quite complimentary. And the ideal response would have been to say yes, and why aren't you? I mean, that's really where the answer lies with all of this. But in this disbalance that we're in right now and also where women uh, and I have to have to back up a step on this but where where women are trying to define a new reality and men it's just confusing because the men haven't quite figured out I'm, and I'm haven't quite figured out how to relate to that you know it's just it's it's uh, one of my young friends who's in college was just talking to me about how very, very difficult it is to date if you're a man because you're just so vulnerable to harassment charges and, you know, things like that. It's just very, um, it's, it's just very complicated. And, you know, and, and once drinking gets involved, I said, well, just never drink. He didn't really think that was the answer, but I thought that was the answer. I thought that was a perfect answer. But, um, but what I wanted to say about this is it isn't really individual people you know, it's, it's the, there's cosmic forces. And there's, there's definitely been a necessary movement toward the feminine. 
And so that's been manifesting as this energy coming out of women. But the real push is that the society needs to balance more toward the feminine. So the irony of it is when women behave aggressively like men and resent being called women, that we're, we're missing the point here. But part of all of that is the women are, or the female is also in reaction to having been owned sexually. And so women want to be strong in their own sexuality. But we're not really being friends when, we're, when we behave that way. It's, it's, it's very, very confusing. I had an extremely interesting conversation with two high school girls. They were at least 16. They were older girls. They came to do a little film, that one of the, a project for filming, and I was, they were, they actually ended up doing a little feature film on Ram Murthy because he was so interesting. And actually, I think my part of the film was to testify about what an interesting guy he was, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> I think they also interviewed me about Ananda. But so anyway, so these girls came a couple of times and I talked to them very, very, as people in this area are, very bright, very capable young women. And the second interview was in the summer and they were dressed in about as little as you could wear and not be arrested. You know, it, it came to, to from here to here and that was about it. You know, and even what was up here was kind of, you know, looking like it was going to fall off at any moment. And they were both just gorgeous women. And so after they interviewed me, just as friends, I just wanted to interview them. You know, so I asked them questions and I, I was curious about the way they were dressed. And because we... Uh, because I didn't have any stake in it. I was just genuinely curious. I said, have you ever thought about how provocative your attire is? And we, we, they had interviewed me about community, actually, at that time. So the, I, this was relevant. And they said, kind of like, everybody dresses this way. I said, that really isn't what I asked you. I said, do you, do you understand that may, men have a, a visual sexual response? Oh, really? They said like this. How would we know that? I said, I don't know. Do you have a brother? Do you have a male friend? Do you have a father? Do you have a doctor? I mean, has anybody ever talked to you? Never. Not a word. I said, do you have any idea that when you walk down the street like that, every man that you walk by, especially you're 17 years old, you're gorgeous, you know, certain thoughts will go through your mind? Is that what you actually really want to do? And they thought about it for a moment. It was all news to them, which was just appalling, but it was all news to them. And then they said, well, that's their problem. I said, well, if you had a friend who was an alcoholic, would you just like open beer cans and just walk around, you know, with the beer in your hand? Would it ever cross your mind that just out of friendship, and then I reference community, just out of friendship, you would think about the impact of your actions on other people? It was all completely new to them. New, new. I mean, n- none of it, they'd never thought of any of it. And these are very bright girls. You know, all they had was this very aggressive, I can do what I want, it's their problem kind of energy. Whoa. And when women behave like that, who have a better brain genetically for a balanced life, you can see where the whole culture is going. Which is where it has gone. Which is the good news. Swami Kriyananda himself said, the good news is people are acting according to their own ideas of what's right and then therefore their own experience will teach them and they won't just grow up repressed and scared and afraid that they're going to go to hell if they step outside of the line but it will be nice when it balances out again 
when it balances out, it, it is not about sex. It's about consideration. It's about something other than selfishness. It's about long-term health and well-being. It's, a, uh, it's, it's about not preying on each other's vulnerable vulnerabilities, but um, thinking about what's good for the whole. And so Master, you know, looking at this sex symbol, as this woman no doubt was, who's just living through all of this, I mean, he called her demonic because in her own consciousness, she's pulling her own self down to the lowest possible level at all times. I mean, <laughs> there was this gentleman that I knew. I went, actually, he wasn't a gentleman. He was a man <laughs> who fancied himself to be quite the, the prize. The problem was he was, well, I was about 30 then, and he was at the same age as I am now, so he seemed extremely old to me. And, uh, but he still thought he was quite the prize. And I just thought to him, thought to myself, how foolish to make yourself worth based on something so transitory. You know, because unfortunately often older men are still attracted to younger women and they don't understand how they look to younger women unless they're really rich or something, which he wasn't. But uh, I just, mostly I just thought, you poor soul, because you've had so much more of your life not being such a prize and yet you're still just walking around not realizing how out of touch you are. So you think of this young woman who's even more so. Um, you know, you, the, the, the shelf life of a, a sexy woman actress is really short. When we made our, our little movie, our Ananda movie, I got to know some of the Hollywood, the people who were helping us were Hollywood uh, workers, you know. And you know, we talked a little bit about uh, an actress over the age of 35 and how really, really, really vulnerable they are. I just thought, wow, who would, you know, and then you just, you're on the shelf after that. So she's demonic also because of what she's doing to herself, you know. And then we've talked earlier in here, I don't need to go backwards in these classes. It just, it also, you see, it makes your self-definition physical. And it's not just the transitory part, but, you know, um, the material world uh, there's many more refined things than just the body you live in. And if your sense of what's wonderful is all just physical, then your whole consciousness just goes down like that. It, it wasn't only sensuality, but years ago when I was living at Ananda village and uh, was working, that was when we were trying to, I think, incorporate as a California city, but it didn't really matter what the project was. I had to be involved with a lot of our neighbors, and we were not always on such good terms with our neighbors. They just lived in a, a different world. They were very uh, attached to the earth. They defined themselves by the land, and they, they lived in a very sort of visceral way. And I was then, again, I was like in my early 30s, and they were, we were mostly peers. They seemed so much older than me. I mean, they looked older than me, and they just seemed older and I thought about it later. I was talking to Swamiji and I said, it's because they're so in their bodies that they just, they're, they, it, it makes them heavy. I mean, literally, they live in the lower chakras, but it's just like they're heavy. And I come in there with my orientation 
And whatever body I'm carrying, it's, it's a vehicle for something else. It's not an end in itself. So again, this woman thinking about my body is, what, is, is the most wonderful thing I know. And it's so vulnerable to start with. And as Master said to her, there are many things that are really more wonderful than that. But how could she know them? Even pure unselfish love. Not even, but especially. Which you're not thinking about when you're thinking like that. So it's all very, very important. And Swami just talks about how she tried to dazzle him and how he thought it was just a joke. You know? Because when you see it like that, you think, there's nothing attractive here. You know, true love, noble human love, true spiritual alliance based on high ideals is much to be admired. Um, But not just physical mating. It's like animals then. So, there you have it. Any comments, questions, protestations? But in our society, another young friend of mine was just telling me a story about his college and I said, you know, your, your generation is so entirely bereft of moral principles. <laughs> I said, you don't even realize how, how, um, how barren, you know, what you're describing to me is. And then again, I thought about it for a while because, you know, you don't want to become irrelevant to the generation that follows you especially in a position such as I'm in, you have to be able to look past all of that. So I thought about it and tried to think of the positive side. And I did say to him, I said, well, the fact is, all the walls are down for you all, just morally. Um, Certainly in sexual matters and to a large extent many other matters, unfortunately. You know, just everything. The walls are down. So whatever values you develop, and he has very good values, Whatever values you develop will be actually your own. You won't be just waiting to grow up and express yourself. You know, you've been able to express yourself all the way through. So what you discover about where your happiness lies, you will actually know. It's the same, same comment Swami made. So that's the good news about living in a time like ours. In fact, a friend of mine said, told me, <laughs> he said... Uh, he, he, he stated this as a fact, and I believe it, it actually is true, given what I know about his nature. He said, uh, I was a sadhu in India for many lifetimes, and last lifetime I told my guru, I just have too many desires, I'm going to go to the West next time. <laughs> and he's, he lived, he got to live out a lot of them. He said, you just wouldn't be able to do this in India, I have to go to America. <laughs> Who's to say? But it's really so. So we find out. And then sometimes we fall. I read that about, you know, when, uh, when Master's disciple Norman Paulson left Mount Washington, Master said, oh, it's been many lifetimes since delusion has caught him. He'd, he'd incarnated with Master in many different ways. Master talked about he was his soldier when he was William, and it's been many lifetimes since delusion has caught, caught him. But living in this country and this culture at this time... There was just too much freedom in it. He, he, he succumbed. But he was a high, is a high soul. And Master felt it wouldn't be long, you know, before he worked it out and came back. But I read somewhere, you know, when, when, when a Master takes an incarnation like this and some of his close disciples come with him, it's a risk. Because, you know, it's not a, it's not a with Babaji in the Himalayas where 
many impulses that one might have, one has no opportunity. And many uh, delusions are infectious, is the word Master used, that it, it wouldn't occur to you until someone close to you is acting in a certain way and then all of a sudden you're infected with the same thought. You know, drugs, drinking, sexuality. I mean, just if you think of it, if you live uh, free of it, it never occurs to you, but if it's close to you, then all of a sudden it might look more attractive than it did before. So, all of which is to say, he called her a demon. All right, 244. A certain woman was an early editor of the Masters. He never liked her work, but she, for she had her own opinions as to what was and was not spiritually true. <laughs> and she never hesitated to intrude her own views into her editing. You know, there's so many interesting things about that paragraph. The fact that Master also used her as an editor. Like, was she a disciple from the past who... He was trying to help. Uh, was she just someone God sent him? Did he have no better choices? You know, it's just we have this picture about how as if Master, because he was an avatar, would be in complete control and make everything go just so. And, and SRF, since Master's death, has tried to just organize everything and make it go just so. That's what organizations do. They, they make they make preemptive strikes to make sure that nothing ever gets out of line. I mean, it's the death of an organization. It's a horrible thing, but it happens all the time. And SRF has done it magnificently, you know, so that there's just no space for anyone to behave except in exactly in one way. But here, Master has this woman, which he goes on to describe her character as not laudable, and she's editing his books, and he doesn't like her editing. I mean, like, Why? I've certainly seen, well, in another place in here or maybe in the path, Master talks about one of his disciples was like a mouthful of hot molasses, too sticky, too hot to swallow and too sticky to spit out. That was what he said. So Master was, he was bound to him because of the disciples' commitment to him and his commitment to God to help those who were sent. It's important to realize that, that the Master's lives are not tidy. And the reason it's important to realize this is because chances are your life will not be tidy either. (laughs) And what happens when an organization like SRF begins to make it all closed in and look tidy and make it seem as if that's how Master did it and that's how Master wanted it, then you have only one choice, which is to mold yourself to that image. And then when you bust out of it because sooner or later you probably will then you can only think that you're damned forever and there's a whole lot of gray areas in all of that so Ananda's rather messier way of living is actually in the long run far more effective because people just can have the opportunity because it's not a success or failure system It's a, well, that didn't work out very well. What are we going to try next sort of way? Or I did my best and now I have to figure out what's better than that one. But people can just have their lives, you know. And and everybody does. Even an avatar has his life. And there's a lot, the the movie Awake helped a lot with Master because they they brought in more of the challenges he faced and so on. And in the biography of Master... Swami tells his biography, the one he wrote about Master, he tells more. 
But, you know, things just weren't neat for him either. He struggled a lot. People opposed him. People betrayed him. People lied about him. People criticized him. You know, and of course, Swami Kriyananda's life was an open book, so we got to watch it all happen there. We got to see not that a life is perfect, but how you deal with life as it actually is, which is a far more useful lesson because of the probability that something like that might happen to someone. Okay. (laughs) Um, So Master goes on to say, she was, the Master told me, a convert to the modern gospel of sex. Once she showed me a book of poems she had written. They were filthy. It's interesting that Master used that word, isn't it? Filthy. I said to her, I could write a poem, I love this, I could write a poem about a bowel movement that would make you think I was describing the most beautiful thing in the world. Master was so frank. You know, he's all, yeah, he's all cleaned up in so many other conversations. But this is what he said to Swami. Swami said he, he could be quite graphic when he wanted to be. I was describing, you, I could write this poem and you would think I was describing the most beautiful thing in the world. But why concentrate on such unworthy subjects? Leave them to others. As for your erotic, neurotic friends, have nothing more to do with them. And this is, again, you have to understand this in the right context. And the right context is, sex is a part of life. It's a natural human experience. Most people are better off not being celibate. Not everyone, but many people are well off just having that part of their life steady and solid and just happening. It's a very strong and positive energy if... It's the basis for something higher. But when it becomes an end in itself, you have just simply trapped yourself in a definition of life that's not going to serve you. And as Master writes earlier, that is not even good for your health in excess. So that's what he's talking about. Sometimes, Master goes on to say about this woman, sometimes I would try to give her advice. Whenever I did so, back several days later would come a letter pages in length explaining how greatly I had misjudged her I wonder sometimes why she ever came here. Instead of accepting my teachings, she tries to impose her own wisdom on what I write. She's good at English, (laughs) but of what use is knowledge if it isn't backed with understanding? Yeah. So she comes. She's sincere with him. I've seen Swami. I saw Swamiji give his energy to lots of people that you would sort of wonder why. But they would have, I remember he said about someone once who was just really impossible, really impossible. But Swami says, his, he said, Swami said, his love for me, his love for Swami Kriyananda, he said, is very childlike and pure. Isn't that interesting? Nothing much else about his nature was, but that part of him was. And so Swami was sort of held captive by that, you might say. And also you have two possibilities. This woman that he's describing is a disciple on her way up, or sometimes they're disciples on their way down, which is that somebody who had who had been uh, more um, connected and therefore to whom Master had an obligation has fallen onto hard times, spiritually speaking, and so he has to keep trying to help her until she herself makes a decision. The Masters are, are very much, they have a long range of view. They don't become impatient like we do about these things. Comments or questions or thoughts? You all can work the question mark. Mike, I'm sure you can. If anybody has any. All right. Pardon me? Thank you. I know I keep swallowing my words. 
number 245. Remember, he told us, it is Divine Mother who tests you through sex, and it is she also who blesses when you pass her test. As soon as the first thought of sex enters the mind, that is the time to catch it. However tempting it seems now, once you are out of it, you will see that it is the greatest delusion. These words, the first thought of sex, mean more than just more than when the thought assails the mind pleasurably. Even the idle thought, the master would have added, when there is no desire, is best avoided. You know, this again, this was the advice that master was giving for monks, but he was also helping them to understand. And this again runs so incredibly counter to our present culture that you have to really stand back and really understand. We are infinite spirit inhabiting a physical body. Our difficulty on the spiritual path is that we constantly lose track of who we actually are. Our, our consciousness is settled at the medulla, which is the um, infinite self identified with the body, instead of centered at the spiritual eye, which is the infinite self knowing itself is infinite. So everything that reinforces our limited understanding of ourself works contrary to the entire direction of the spiritual path. Now, it all has to be understood that we also have to work within the natural mm, directions of our own karma, that you can't just say, well, I remember many years ago when the Nayaswami order first started, someone wanted to take the Nayaswami vow, which is the final lifetime renunciate vow. And it was not a good idea. And I said to the person, why do you want to take that vow? Well, it's the highest vow. You know, I'm an achiever. I've been successful in everything else I've done. I've always aimed for the top and made it. But you don't, you don't go after spiritual life like that because it's not something that you acquire with willpower. You know, spiritual life is a plant and it just, it grows. There's just nothing you can do and you can't, you can't yell at it and make it grow faster. You have to feed it and water it and give it the right conditions and then it will grow, but it will nonetheless just grow. And it has to grow through wherever it's standing. People create endless difficulties for themselves by saying, if I were more advanced, that's what it would look like. So since I want to be more advanced, I think that's what I'll try to make myself look like. Instead of actually standing with humility, it's often humiliation, but in nonetheless, whatever it is, humiliation often leads to humility. But you, you just have to stand right where you're actually standing and feel the pulse of your own of your own nature. You're not coming out in the right way. Let me just think for a second. I lost a thread here. Oh, yes. So when he talks about having a... Mm, trying to remove yourself from, from one of the most compelling uh, aspects of being in a physical body. He's just, he's just giving you the most obvious advice, which is let's not continually work at cross-purposes with our aspiration. You know, it's one thing to uh, have a relationship, to have a, a committed, wholesome relationship. It's even another thing to just do whatever you're going to do. But it's, it's a wholly different level 
to constantly, deliberately just reinforce your physicality. When I lived my first 10 years at Ananda, I was in the monastery there, and I lived with a group of women primarily. And it was extremely interesting to me how when I wasn't in a, a, a relationship that was constantly affirming my gender, how interesting it was how the gender began to slip away. And when I got married after that, and there was somebody always affirming, there was always a man in front of me that made me feel like a woman. I just knew that. I mean, quite apart from sex or anything, just the, 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 the duality of it was always, it made me aware of it. Whereas for those 10 years when I wasn't reinforcing that duality, it just, gender just somehow went out of my consciousness. It was very dramatic. It was a very dramatic shift of energy. Without, you know, it wasn't a, a, a terrible coarsening of my consciousness. It was just an, a reaffirmation of it. You know, which is why, I mean, I, when I was talking to those high school girls, I was saying, you know, I, I, was, I grew up in the 60s. Let's just leave it there. <laughs> but, you know, it was like, I don't want to, why would you want to provoke that response in absolute strangers? You know, it's one thing if you have some actual interest, but just to be walking down the street, why would you want to provoke it? Because those thoughts will also affect you. And so you yourself, whether you're, whether you're knowing it or not, you will constantly be affirming your physicality and your gender. And why would you want to do that if your goal is to transcend those things? So it, it all has to be acted out with intelligence. I've seen people make themselves really crazy with this stuff. So you have to be really um, sensitive and bright. But if you're sensitive and bright, there's a lot of, a lot of teaching in here. And also Swamiji, you know, saying this point, which is, it's just, um, in the Bhagavad Gita it talks about it. You know, you, there's something that you desire and then you begin to obsess about that desire and then it begins to take you over and then you begin to have very poor judgment and gradually you lose everything. So you don't want to be obsessing about something that you know has that much power over you, even though you might think it's fun. So that's what he's warning us. Comments or questions? I think we're finally out of this section, which I don't mind leaving. Okay, number 246. Peggy Dietz, whom I'd known at Mount Washington as Peggy Bowman, was a sincere devotee. After some years in the monastery, however, in obedience to the master's instructions, she left our way of life. In obedience to the master's instructions, she left our way of life. After her departure, she kept in close contact with him. He instructed me, Peggy informed me years later, to give Kriya initiation to anyone I met if that person seemed to me ready to receive it. When he told me that, I protested, but Master, what will the organization say? Are you following them, he asked me, or are you following me? Peggy Dietz was a a character and a half. Some of you may have seen her. She came to Ananda in 1993 when we did a centennial. Was it 93 or was it? When we did a centennial celebration, she was a very extremely eccentric and absolutely adorable person. And Master just put her out on her own to, to live completely differently. Swami puts this in here also because... without naming names, he's wanting to make sure that there's alternative understandings of Master's teachings to what Self-Realization Fellowship puts out. And here's Peggy Dietz, who's a direct disciple, who Master took out of the monastery 
and then authorized to give Kriya without ever asking that they have anything to do with SRF. She, was, she just operated completely on her own. And he sent her off into bohemian circles primarily and just told her to look for people who looked ready and to share the teachings with them, which is what she did for her whole life. Yeah, completely other. It also gives us an example of the fact that we also have to have a little imagination about how we serve. And it's, it takes more energy to be an entrepreneur about your spiritual life than it does just to follow the line that's already there. These are all very delicate lines because one doesn't want to become egoically determined to do it one's own way. So it's nice to have friends whose wisdom you trust. But nonetheless, this is a path in which, I mean, everybody is so different. And everybody relates to somebody. And, and you know, it's not like... There's, one of the things I've always loved about Ananda is there's just so many of us. And, and so-and-so doesn't like so-and-so very much, but they're suddenly in tu- totally in tune with this one. And this one over here that you can't stand to be in their company is just completely attractive to these over here. And so everybody gets to help somebody. And, and if we put ourselves in the position where, you know, how can I serve today? You know, when you wake up every morning and say, well, who do you want me to help? Who are you going to bring in front of me that I can give something to? And I watched Swamiji and he, he just did what was appropriate. I, I was thinking about when, when he was living in Gorgon in the house there, he, that's outside of Delhi, he, uh, there was a bookstore he used to like to go to. He would just take little outings and we would go out with him sometimes. And he would go to the... Uh, Ananda had, had or has a store in that same mall so we would go and visit the Wishing Tree store and then we'd go down to the Italian coffee place this is modern India drink coffee excellent Italian coffee then he'd go into the own bookstore and we'd sort of do the little circuit and uh, I, we were standing looking at the books and it was the metaphysical books and there was autobiography of Yogi and some Indian just came in Indian man came in and took the book off the shelf and was looking at it Swami just turns to him and says I was his disciple I lived with him for the last three and a half years of his life. He was the most wonderful man I've ever met. And this, this Indian man is sort of... I don't think Swami was in his orange robes. He was in Western clothes. If he'd been dressed like a Swami, it would have been... So it made the exchange even odder because Swami was American and he was just... And I, I can see him in a sports jacket. So he, And so he was just talking like this. And the man didn't really quite know what to do. He sort of looked at the book and put it on the shelf and went away. <laughs> But I was so, I was so touched by it. It was just so sincere. It was, it was almost like the, the, as soon as Master's picture was there, Swami just could not contain his enthusiasm. He just had to tell him, you know, what a wonderful man he was and what a wonderful book it was. And it, but it was just a, a childlike um, enthusiasm rather than a sort of calculated, what should I do? But then in Goa, where we were, where we're the taxi driver, the Goan taxi driver, who's taking us to the Kashmiri shop, because the Kashmiri shops were so much nicer than the Goan shops, because all the Kashmiris had come out of Kashmir, and were all living in Goa, and were taking over all the businesses. And the Goan taxi driver is really upset about that, and he doesn't really want to take us to the Kashmiri shop, but that's where we want to go. You know, it's a whole dynamic... Swami starts talking to the man about the natural handicrafts 
of the of the of part of that part of India about Goa. What could you make? What would the tourists like? You know, and and it and we we rode with that man about three or four times, and every time Swami would just progress the conversation about the handicrafts of that area, asking questions, you know, just like this, and just suggesting a positive alternative instead of being mad at the Kashmiris. Why don't you compete? Wouldn't that be a good idea? You must have something to offer. No mention of God. No mention of Kriya. No, I was his disciple. He was the most wonderful man. But what can I give? How can I help? And it's just wherever he was. The only time Swami was ever silent, I mean, really withdrawn, is if it was clear nobody wanted what he had. Which happened on a regular basis, depending on where we were. But then he just, he was perfectly content. Nobody wanted anything from him. He just... He hadn't. He was. He wasn't doing it compulsively, is what I mean. He wasn't trying to shine. He was just responding. So keep that in mind. Otherwise, life is so dull. Yes, Kenny. We need to talk into the microphone so it goes onto the film. Is the reason why. Otherwise, on the internet, they just there's this long silence. Why go like this? And they don't like it. Okay. The pressure's on, huh? Uh-huh, pressure's on. <laughs> um, so you mentioned everybody's different, mm-hmm. and. You know, everyone's spiritual path is different. Right. Well, everyone's expression of the spiritual path. Sure. Uh So take the most, you know, ridiculous or absurd religion that there is today. Okay. Um, There's quite a few of them. Sure. So, you know. We don't have to name them. We can just reference them. So we can sit here and say, okay, this is their religion and it's inconsistent with a lot of how we, but then they would say, Right, like we are on our spiritual path, and something right. that I've always struggled with is looking at the path of others and trying to say, "Oh, that is the path for them, and that is like I guess the right path for them at the time," versus, "Oh, they are actually not heading in the right direction." Well, they might not be heading in the right direction, but it, I mean, okay, let's let's is that I, I, is, is that yeah. the question? Is there more to it? It's my attempt to express how I feel. Yeah. <laughs> okay. No, but do I have I got the whole picture? Is there more? I think so. Yeah. Okay. Because it's actually a very good question. Um, you know, I've been studying Master's teachings now since 1969, which is really quite a long time, and uh, I've never, I have, I've, I've almost never <clears throat> heard a question that he didn't answer, or that Swami didn't answer from his teachings. I mean, that's really quite a statement. Or that I couldn't infer the answer. Because he just thought of everything. So the simple answer to that question is that progress is directional, not absolute. So the right direction depends on where you're standing. And sometimes people do go backwards. So first of all, there's nothing to guarantee that every decision you make is going to cause you to go forward. Um, Many times you make decisions. I was talking about Norman Paulson being pulled away from the path this woman that Master called a demon who wasn't really willing to think any higher, a lot of times what you're doing is you're making it worse and worse and worse until it gets bad enough that you will be motivated to think in a different way. So you, you might not actually be going toward the light, but you still may be following the only route that you could possibly follow to get to the light. And that is a cosmic point of view based on the fact that everybody's going to get there eventually. And so if somebody's doing stupid things, they will gradually, their own experience will teach them. Maybe, and maybe through enormous and intense suffering, they'll have to learn it. 
Okay, that's, that's part of the answer. So what, you, what, what a person has to do if you have intelligence, I mean, if you have a mind that thinks, and try, because some people just take people as they are and they, these thoughts don't ever occur to them. And I mean, such people are wonderful and I fall at their feet in admiration and sometimes I wish I could be such a person, but I'm not. I think about everything. So you have to have a thought form where you can see it but the only way you can watch someone really literally going backwards is if you have great faith in God and great faith that there's a benign power and that even though they appear to be moving away, God is never going to let go of them. And it's, it's really not easy. Because if, if they want to know, that's one thing. But if they don't want to know and they just want to justify themselves, you don't help someone by telling them something they're not going to understand. In fact, often you drive them further away because then they justify themselves. That's part of it. The other part of it is a person can embrace as much of the cosmic truth, if you think of self-realization as brought sanat and dharma by a line of teaching like this, as the whole picture. People can take only what they can take. I had a very vivid experience when I was on a radio program when I still lived at Ananda Village and I was invited to speak on the radio about the community. Organic farming, goats, owner-built homes, you know, just that was the subject matter. Before the program started, somehow this man who didn't seem to know until I was there that I also had a guru, that I practiced Kriya Yoga, you know, that all these things, he was a devout Christian. But I also knew that he had been a drug addict on the street and Jesus had saved him. This he told me. So then we get on the air and he feels that he's, he's obligated as his duty to Jesus to witness against the devil, which is now me, who's his, you know, his guest on his radio program. He had to witness for Jesus against the devil all on live radio. You know, Not that we had a huge audience, but this is all going on. Now my problem is I'm so glad this man is a fanatical Christian because if it hadn't been for Jesus, he'd be dead in a ditch as a heroin addict. So hallelujah, praise the Lord, you found a fundamentalist, narrow, bigoted, fanatical teaching that's going to keep you off drugs. Isn't that terrific? And so I couldn't say a word against him because it would have been wrong of me. And so finally I said something to the effect of, well, you know, my point of view allows for both of us and yours only allows for you but how about we talk about the the goats and I just I just I just refused I actually literally went into silence and I just you know motioned that I wasn't going to answer until he changed the subject now that was an extreme example but when you meet someone who whatever they're clinging to whatever you think of it you have to also consider whether they even have the capacity to go beyond it and where they would be if they didn't have it. That's why you should never do anything to diminish a person's faith as they define it unless they have really come to you and showed themselves wanting to know. And even then you have to be very careful because it's, it's a really bad thing to undermine someone's faith if they're not ready to replace it with something else. So it really doesn't make any difference you know, where it is on the spectrum because for this particular seed, you know, this is, the, this is how far they've sprouted and that's what they're going to find around them right then. And, 
They're not good. They just don't even know what's over there. They can't see it. I mean, I had a woman in this church who was here for a while. She was here actually for quite a few years. And then she came to me one day and she sort of, I don't know how to exactly manifest it, but do you all believe in families, family values like this? And I mean, that's code for the sacredness of marriage and all that, you know, sort of like this. And I said, well, we're not against it, you know. It's not like we preach against it, but uh, it's not the highest value. You know, finding God is the highest value. And anything that actually interferes with that becomes a lesser duty. And she just, she couldn't stay with us after that. Because in her life, which I happen to know a lot about, you know, the, the, she had to have that for a whole lot of reasons. You know, anything that undermined that even slightly was way too threatening for her. Is that enough? That's it. Okay. Let's take a break. Okay? Take five minutes or so. You know this, and I don't know where I read it, but anyway, uh, I remember hearing about that Peggy Dietz said that she would, like, go out of her body a lot. And so I think Master wanted her to go out with people to sort of balance that. Does that make sense? I don't know whether... I don't know that part of it, but I do know that Peggy had trouble staying in her body. Okay. The master had her drive, and I think he had her drive to help keep her. And, and he also told her to drive fast. Oh, did he? And so Swami commented about this, because then people started talking about master liked to drive fast. No, Swami said he liked Peggy. He wanted Peggy to drive fast. Maybe he wanted Peggy to drive fast to keep her more focused. I don't know. Swami Kriyananda himself used to drive really fast. He was... He was uh, uh, reckless wouldn't be exactly the right word, but, you know, he, he would drive very fast. Nirmala told me this story, too, about... Let me think how this went. I think I have this correct. It's at least close to this. When Swami went across the country uh, for one of his... The second tour, I believe, in a motor home, Nirmala was the driver. She just... Yeah, you know, don't, don't judge the package. You, you, can't tell the, you can't tell the package by the wrapping. Anyway, she drove the motor home. But she talked about being on some kind of a road somewhere with Swamiji and the visibility was not there and he just kept telling her when to pass. Yeah. And, and it, was, it became a really like, all right. And she just did what he said. Yeah, real, real test sometimes. But he's not, cra- he's not reckless and he's not foolish at all. He's a very cautious person. She, you know, she went through all of that and whatever, the, whether it was actually the motorhome or something, but it was the story was, he was, she was driving and he was instructing her. And she was having to just take his word for it. Yeah, he, he, he was, it was interesting. He stopped driving quite a long time ago. He stopped driving completely, though. I was with him. We were with him in Assisi. And he drove into Assisi. And then on the way out... He somehow or another, and I can't, I can't conjure up exactly how it happened, but he ran into the back of a van when we were coming on that road from Assisi. turned out to be our van, and it was filled with Ananda people and an Ananda driver. And uh, after that, he never drove again. He really said, you know, Divine Mother was telling me. I think it was that he... I don't really know. I mean, I was going to say something like he, he, he was not in this world enough to drive. 
But I'm not really quite sure why, but he never drove after that. He often had people drive for him, but after that he never drove. It was just like Divine Mother was warning him. I remember pulling off to the side of the road and the three of us getting out of the car and then they start getting out of the car and it's Jayadev or whoever it was and, oh God, we were so relieved, you know. Nothing had happened, but it was, it was an interesting moment. Well, what would that have been? Okay, let's try to do some math here. 90, he, he moved to Assisi in 98, so it would have been around 2000, something like that. So he died at 2013 in his 80s. So he must have been, gosh, it must have been earlier than that. But it couldn't have been much earlier because we weren't in Assisi much earlier than that. Yeah. He had very, very... The question was, why was Swami a fast driver? Well, you know, he was very conscious. He was was really conscious of what was going on at all times, and he had tremendous concentration. And when he concentrated on anything, he was absolutely concentrated. So he could see, and he had very fast reflexes. So I don't think he felt like he was driving that fast. He also had a, a very strong sense that he had a lot to do and he didn't have all that much time to do it in. So I think he just didn't see any reason to, str- to stroll down the highway. <laughs> Most of the time when I was in the car with him, Jyotish or Seva was driving. I was only with him when he was... He never... Well, he, he, he never let me drive. Because <laughs> he said to me, you forget that you're driving. He said, you're fine when you know you're driving, but you forget you're driving. And he was absolutely right. I mean, I just get interested in everything else that was going around, and I I did not have the concentration. And so he he rarely let me drive his car. It was was a pretty... Once he did, when when he decided to start the Nayaswami order, and he was... Uh, miraculously healed it's in the introduction to that book and he came out of this I thought he had died and in fact he had just actually gone through something and he was healed and he starts talking to me about what the Naya Swamis are going to wear really and I told him that I had a, a, a tunic that was a pattern that I thought would be appropriate and it was a couple of miles away where I was staying and he gave me the keys to his car. I mean, when people talk to me about whether or not it matters what the Naya Swamis wear, and I say 15 minutes after Swami was miraculously healed by Master, he gave me the keys to his car so I could bring him a sample pattern. I don't know. But that's the only time he let me drive his car in about 30 years. <laughs> and I was so nervous. Oh, Lordy, I was just afraid something awful's going to happen. <laughs> okay. We ready? Number 247. When you work for God, not self, the Master told us, that is just as good as meditation. I love that. I'll read it again. When you work for God, not self, the Master told us, that is just as good as meditation. Then work helps your meditation, and meditation helps your work. You need the balance. With only meditation, one becomes lazy, and the senses become strong. With only work... The mind becomes restless and one forgets God. He told us he'd seen hermits in the Himalayas fighting over blankets. Such non-attachment, 
he commented, ironically. Swami uh, Master talks about people who go to the Himalayas and give up their responsibilities and just say they're going to meditate all the time. He said, first they become physically lazy, then they become mentally lazy, then they become spiritually lazy. And that, I mean, sometimes very scornfully, they're no better than bums. He would say merely because if you're not able to keep your energy high, really high in meditation, you need to work because otherwise you lose the balance. The reason I also like that is because given the choice we all made to incarnate and be on this path at this particular stage of development of self-realization in the world, in early Dwapara, there's just a lot for us to do. It's just not a time when we just get to withdraw from the world. It's a time in which the spiritual life has to be brought out into the world in countless ways in which nothing is set yet. And in order for it to be focused enough and have enough dynamism to really be able to do its job, we just can't, we don't have the luxury of turning our backs on the world. And it's the, it's the disadvantage of coming in in rising yuga. I mean, I'm saying this slightly jokingly, but not really. If the yuga is going up, that means what you do in a spiritual sense will be able to take root and gradually expand. If the yuga is going down, then there's no point. And so that's what happened right after Jesus died, because he was, um, if he was, on, the, he was on the downward cycle of Kali Yuga, and the, the nadir of that being 500 years after he died. So for those five centuries, there was no point in trying to transform society because it was just getting darker and darker and darker. And when you listen to or read uh, the book about the yugas or listen to any of the talks that Vyasa and others used to give, Vyasa has all this history about what happened at 500 AD where basically the barbarians from here and the barbarians from there and the barbarians from here and all of the you know, all the books were burned and just like civilization was just ruined. Everything was knocked down by these horrible souls that were incarnating then to to knock it down. So the Christians all just went away and they went into very isolated monasteries. They went into the tombs. They went into the caves and they just, they they kept their own um, spirituality bright because the drama of the planet is independent of the drama of the individual souls. The soul can make spiritual progress at all times, but the planet has its own cycle. So if you're in, in Kali Yuga descending, just don't bother. I mean, don't get a building like this because the bar- barbarians will just come knock it down. It's just useless. So they kept civilization alive. That's what they talk about in the monasteries. But us, because we're Dwapar Yuga rising, and Master came to set this whole new direction for all of civilization. And we chose to come in now with Swami or right after Swami, who has historically, in multiple incarnations, had this this responsibility of taking what Master did and then establishing it, and we came to help him. So it just doesn't leave us with 10 hours a day to just sit and do what we want to do. We have a job. And whether we... I mean, we just have a job. It's as simple as that. You know, you have to, you have to, you have to cooperate with the ray that you're following. You know, I mean, I remember people in the early years of Ananda when, 
well, we weren't working any harder then than we work now, but it was noticeable. We just worked all the time. We didn't really have a choice. I remember somebody coming to to Swami with a book of masters where it said, you know, do a little God-reminding work and meditate the rest of the time. So I went, oh, that's for a higher age. He just went like that. He said, yeah, that's true, but that's not true now. And it's just not now because if, if we don't establish it, it'll never have traction. And I mean, I had, to, I had to learn that. I was very world-renouncing in my attitudes. And, but I, I was taking the fruit of Swamiji's Dipasya, but I was not willing to help. I mean, I helped, but not really. I always stood on the side and just thought, I, you know, I wasn't interested. And then, I, then I, I did this sequence, which I've done many times since. Let's see. Everything I know about the spiritual path, I've learned from Swami. Everything I know about detachment, you know, and God-realization, I've learned from him. And he's acting as if this really matters. <laughs> so maybe there's something wrong in the way I've interpreted it. You know, because I've seen people do that. They'll, they'll, everything they know they learn from him and then they'll decide that he's wrong on, on a principle that they learned from him. And so I think, what are the chances, you know, if it's going to be he's, he's wrong or I'm wrong, what are the odds? But it I took me a while to realize that this is discipleship. He, he didn't say, oh, I'd rather work than meditate. Oh, I'd rather just you know, spend all my time driving fast so that I can get there and write another book. He didn't say that. He said, how can I serve? And then Master just started telling him how he could serve, and he said, yes, I will. And that's basically, that's what I finally saw. Oh, that's right. This is what friends do for each other. You know, if you have a friend who's very, just a friend, what to speak of, a spiritual relationship, if you have a friend who's deeply devoted to something that's very hard work and, and you pat them on the head every once in a while and wish them luck, you know, and won't even pick up a box or um, run an errand, it, it's not much of a friendship. And that's what I finally realized I was doing with Swami. I was just letting him work hard and isn't that cute? And I was just sort of sitting off to the back and I thought there's something really wrong with this picture. And that's Swami... I mean, in, in, uh, I mean, when the master comes, he comes for a reason, especially in this context. You know, if, if he was just Babaji up in the hills, but they're all busy too. Everybody has jobs. You have to realize that. When, uh, when Paula was in the hospital dying, my friend Paula, our friend Paula, she, uh, a lot of the final contacts with people were on the telephone her last three days before she died. She calls, up, she calls up Swami. She had a very childlike way. That's why she was like Peggy Dietz. She said, Swami, you know, I hope never to come back. <laughs> she says, I hope never to come back. But if you decide to come back, I'll come back and help you. <laughs> she says like that. And then she also said, I hope they have a job for me, sir. You know I like to be busy. <laughs> and Swami said, oh, Paula, I'm sure they have something for you to do. Just like that. You know, she likes to be busy. I like to be busy. You know, we like to help. That's really what it comes down to. And if help is meditation, then fine. But if it isn't, you have to ask the question, what am I really trying to do? How can I be a disciple? It's very important. So then when Master says, 
when you work for God, the master told us, that is just as good as meditation. He didn't, it's not equivocal. I think it's very interesting. He didn't even say almost as good. He says it's just as good. And in the Patanjali, Swami says, the best way to overcome the ego is selfless service. So these are important principles because if you're going to be part of this path, you will be asked to do a lot of service. But when you work for God, not self, he says, it's not merely to work for yourself, although it's better than being lazy. It's better to to be actively selfish than to be completely tamasic. But working for God, because it does, you overcome your limitations and it helps. Swami talked about, I believe it was Miramata, who a master said, I think, was second to Gyanamata in realization. Although some other sources say that Durga was, but anyway, she was very advanced, and perhaps a liberated soul, maybe, Swami said. Swami said, I know for a fact she never meditated more than 30 minutes at a time. Which is really quite a remarkable statement. He said she just got, she got, the, she got free by service. Because the point is, to transcend all sense of self. That's even what the point of meditation is. You would, these things run contrary to sort of the neat pictures that we arrange, but they're important to realize because also you may find yourself, either by circumstances or by temperament, unable to put the kind of energy you want into meditation, and you have to realize that that doesn't um, limit you spiritually. The only thing that limits you spiritually is your own attitudes. But of course, work without meditation also, um, how did he say it? The mind becomes restless and you forget God. So you have to keep it all in balance. It's never simple. Yes, Ramani? It's just a clarification. Uh who was it that could only work 30 minutes? Or meditate, meditate 30 minutes? Uh, I believe it was Miramata. If I'm accurate, but I believe it was Miramata. That was Marinalini's mother, actually. She brought Marinalini to Mount Washington when Marinalini was about 12 or 13. Miramata was one of Swamiji's friends. He liked her very much. They worked together and he was very, was very positive. Okay. There were other children she also brought. She also, Mirama, uh, Marinalini had a sister and a brother, but I think only uh, Marinalini stayed. The sister stayed as a disciple, mostly, but, but uh, Marinalini was the only one who stayed. It, but see, there's a picture, too. I mean, she came with her children. Mount Washington was a very different place at that point. You know, they were sincere, just like us. Okay, number 248. I, Walter Kriyananda had to work hard in the beginning to develop devotion. I'd become overbalanced in the direction of intellectuality, thinking it to be the way to find truth. Keep on with your devotion, Master said to me lovingly one day. Think how dry your life was when you depended on intellect. I had been thinking that the inner change was due primarily to the long hours I'd been spending in chanting, praying, and meditating. Then someone said to me that the master had told a few disciples in Encinitas, look how I have changed Walter. I then realized that whereas my own efforts had been important, it is ultimately God's power alone through the guru that makes any real change in the disciple. 
the disciple's part is determinedly to open his heart to the inner flow of divine grace. There's, there's so much in those words. It's, it's, the, it's the oddest thing that absolutely cannot be, cannot be explained. But it is so unequivocally true if you just live with it for a while that you, you see that you become someone else and as you become someone else, even though you have just been working so hard to become someone else, you realize that you had nothing to do with the transformation. <laughs> so it's, it's just kind of, it's beyond the mind. But it, that's why Master said to him, you know, develop the devotion and you'll just sort of see how it works. I mean, I, uh, it's all about faith. It's all about respect. It's all about doing what's in front of you without spending a whole lot of time worrying about yourself. It's all about just, on the, on the smallest part of it, just keeping on. I saw recently, right after Ananda uh, Village burned in 1976 when we had that huge fire, um, the next day or so, I mean the, the 900 acres, or 450 acres burned, excuse me, we had 900 and half of it burned. And it burned so completely that uh, a, a walk that I would take every day from Ayodhya over to the publications where I worked, I actually got lost and I ended up, for those of you who know it, I ended up down at the market. I mean, I walked every day, but the landscape was so completely shifted that I just ended up, you know, half a, a quarter of a mile from where I thought I was going because it was so different. And, you know, in a few days, we all got out there and started cleaning it up. And um, I had this uh, bright yellow striped, my bumblebee t-shirt that I wore all the time. And I just went out, you know, we all went out there one day and we just start. we had to start cleaning it up. There was, nobody else was going to do it for us. And so there's some picture of me in the bumblebee t-shirt, you know, with these big work gloves on, picking up some big burn branch. And somebody took a picture of that. Swamiji, it was very sweet. He always really liked that picture because he said it, that, you know, it just epitomized. There I was standing there covered with ash holding up this big thing. But what was so fun about it for me is I didn't, I don't, I didn't even know why he cared. I mean, of course that's how we felt. How else would we have felt? You know, we'd been challenged and now we just had this work to do. And, and that was, there was a, a certain simplicity to our lives there, which I wish we could all get back to if the economy crashes and we're all sleeping in this building because it's the only thing we own and it's the only place we have, you know, I think it's going to be a lot more fun or else we're all living in the greenhouses at the farm. You know, I think we're just going to find when you have nothing to do except just keep yourselves going and see what you can make out of it. This, the complexity that we have to live with is much more difficult. You know, even... But that's what we have. Even then, I remember thinking often because I was in the monastery, you know, I would think about the kind of monastery where you would just come in as a young novice and you would know exactly what you'd be doing on any day 50 years forward. And part of me would think that would be horrible and part of me also thought, well, that would be so relaxing. It would just be so relaxing just to know that this is the cycle of the year and this is what we do. And I mean, in, in an ideal in a monastery where there is true inspiration, there's really something really quite beautiful. I, I think when we lived with Teresa of Avila, for example, I think it really was lots of fun 
We had lots of fun in those monasteries. Um, because even then, at Ananda, even though it was so simple compared to now, there were, there, the walls were down. You, know, you, you had many choices at all times. But to just keep it as simple as you can keep it, whatever's in front of you, just give it your whole heart. And whatever God asks of you, really feel like he's asked it of you. When I first was there, I went into the kitchen right away and I ended up being in charge of the kitchen for several years. The kitchen was the retreat kitchen and also most of the community, or one part of the community, always ate there. Swami used to give, it was at the seclusion retreat, and Swami would give Sunday service every other Sunday. And on the Sundays that he would come, I would get up really early and I would do my absolute best to make the most beautiful lunch for everyone that I could make. When Swami didn't come, I'd stroll in and open the refrigerator and see what happened to be there and I'd just put something out. I mean, it was family, so to speak. But one day I realized that that would not please him if he actually saw that I was active for him and lazy for everyone else, that that would not, he would not say good girl to me. Not at all. And I also realized, of course, that I was enjoying myself more when I gave my whole heart to it. So I shifted and really started doing it all, you know, as best I could. I mean, that's really, that's where the joy comes from, whatever it is. When you hold back is when you suffer. When you give everything is when you have a glorious time, whatever it is, however small. You know, I was up in, uh, wherever I was in Washington, and I'm on my way back, and I'm, few weeks. Let me just think of how I really want to say this. You know, I was so concentrated and I was most of the time working on something real. But you know, even when I just go outside and take a walk, it was really interesting. I, I began to realize that I'd made friends with all the flowers and the horses and I had a, a certain relationship. But it was like, if you're, just always stay awake. And I... I I, I watched the flowers because I walked up and down this driveway for eight weeks over the course of a whole wildflower season. So I would see them come and then I saw them go into seeds. And, you know, and I realized I was, I was having conversations and I, I, you know, I felt a little embarrassed at one point. But it was real. You know, it's like just give to whatever's around you. And if it's just wildflowers, this one wildflower that started out as a daisy and then the leaves went away and it turned into this seed ball. It was just incredible. And I just, I really wanted it to know what a miracle it was. When, you, when you're thinking like that, you, you see how, I mean, I, I was just so delighted by that seed. And then a little piece of me sort of looked at me. And I thought, no, this is exactly right. This is what I have to love right now, so let me love it. You know, you don't need more than that. Understand? Yeah. All right. That'll be tonight. God bless you. <laughs> all right. The horses had all heard my jokes too by then. So. <laughs> oh, I need to tell you. Yes. Okay. Um, so we started at two forty-three, and we went through 248. Could I have a pencil or something from somebody?